Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Uh, And that's what was happening. I was photographing slides and I would mail them back to my mom who put them in the freezer. And then I would go back home and I would work for a while to earn enough money to process them. Wow because I had no money. And so it would be years later before I would see actually what I was photographing. That's bananas. That's a very that's a terrible <laughs> way to learn how to get better. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. We are also joined today by friend of the show, former guest, Kevin Kelly, the senior maverick at Wired and the author of the forthcoming book, Vanishing Asia. Kevin, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Thanks. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Kevin's new book and change. But before we dig into that and pack our bags and head off, we of course have to check in. You got to check in for your flight. We got to check in for our flight together. Yes. We will begin this episode like all the others with a check-in question and inspired by the summary that I got to see of your book, Kevin, I'm going to use the check-in question. What is a food you're super into right now? Hmm. Can be a composed dish, an ingredient, anything that you are leaning heavily into at the moment. And Aaron, we'll start with you and then Kevin and I will finish it off. Interesting. I am very, very into squash right now. I'm doing a lot of like burnt butter, roasted honey, pistachios, goat cheese, squash. Anything with those combinations is working for me at the moment. Very nice. Kevin, what about you? I'm really into chocolate. As everybody knows, chocolate is the fourth food group and (laughs) you simply cannot have too much of it. The higher the count, the the, the the more pure it is, the, the better. It tastes like <laughs> dirt, but it really works for me. All right. God, I need you to teach me that skill, Kevin. I've been trying to convert to enjoying dark chocolate, and it's just not sticking. You just got to grind up. <laughs> I gotta work. I gotta work harder at this. I had a hard time answering this, but at the moment, so we made a trip recently to, in keeping with the theme of today's show, we went to a huge Asian grocery store that is very close to our house, which is amazing. But we hadn't gone since pre-pandemic because we were just not going to big stores that we like to browse in very often. Anyway, we went to H Mart. Ed bought a big giant tub of gochujang, and we have been eating like noodles with gochujang and Brussels sprouts. And it is just like as a saucy (laughs) seasoning base made it into every dish that I have enjoyed in like the last month and brings me very fondly back to my time in South Korea. So that is my current favorite flavor. And very on topic for today's episode. I do what I can. 
All right, so today's topic is Vanishing Asia, and then we're going to find some of the connections between this magnum opus of a book and what we usually talk about on this show. And I guess maybe to start, Kevin, can you just tell the audience a little bit about where this project started and what it became and what it is now? Yeah, I may start at the back. What it is now is a, a very large book. We'll call it a book, but it's actually <laughs> three books because it's so big of over a thousand pages, a thousand eighty pages um, of photographic evidence documenting the traditions texture of an old Asia and an Asia that is rapidly going away. These may be festivals, these may be ceremonies, there may be costumes, architecture, urban vistas. It's the whole thing that you might imagine in your mind of an old Asia. And I've collected them together over 49 years of travel in Asia. And I put them into this huge, humongous book that is almost like a time machine. So you open it up, and you'd be going through it, and you're kind of in another planet far, far long ago, far, far away. <laughs> and so you take a kind of a trip. But what happens when you're turning through and you're seeing is that it's it's kind of it's a journey to differences and otherness because these are all design solutions to the normal challenges we have of how we live, where how we dress, what our homes look like, and here's a whole nother different alternative way of doing things. And that's sort of what this book, Vanishing Asia, is about. And I'm having a Kickstarter campaign right now to try and get as many pre-sales so that we can print it at a price that um, enables it to get into as many hands as possible. It is a big artifact. I will admit right up front that not everybody will even have room in their <laughs> bookshelf for this. It's a problem. I mean, you kind of almost need your own little table for it, kind of like the David Hockney book, which has its own stand. Yeah, uh, We haven't gone that direction, but could have, because it's a very big book besides being thick. It's also large in terms of the size. So what I'm offering is sort of an ode to otherness, a, a way of thinking differently about the things that we normally have to take care of. And I would include in, in that ways that people work and ways that we get things done. I've observed that old ways often have a seed of difference that might provoke a new solution, a new way. Mm. To give one example, bare, going barefoot. When, when I first began photographing almost 49 years ago, 50 years ago, it was not uncommon in many Asian countries for people to be barefoot all the time, including barefoot in the cities. Right. You'll never see that now. If anybody has two cents in their pocket, they're going to buy foam flip-flops. Right. But in that kind of callous barefoot idea in the city, you, you can have the idea of this kind of the vibrant five-foot barefoot trend where you <laughs> – could imagine, well, how could we return to that? What what might be the future shoes be if you were trying to make barefoot better or the better barefoot? Right. And so it's that kind of idea bank that I think the book has comes and works for me is what are some of the solutions that may no longer be valid because of other reasons that, that may still have some core, some kernel of difference that might work now because 
the truth is, and this goes right into the territory that you mine, which is that in today's economy, everything is powered by thinking different, by mm. thinking differently, by being able to have a different idea. And that becomes more and more challenging the more connected we get. The more we're connected to each other 24 hours a day, the harder it becomes to think differently. And I'm kind of trying to retain some of these ideas as a prompt to help us to think differently while we're all connected. I I love that as as a prompt. And uh, yeah, it, it really sparked something for me while you were talking. So Aaron knows this, but Kevin, we don't know each other that well. I took a sabbatical from work about 10 years ago with my uh, then fiance maybe i don't know we're married now and uh, and we traveled around asia so looking at your little your the maps of those footpaths there was there was quite a bit of overlap and one of the things that i noticed and took away in terms of lifestyle but had not really thought about in terms of work is just how many elements of life that we observed there were simple because of necessity and yet we're incredibly effective. And when you just said that about the five finger, you know, sneaker, like what it immediately made me think of is how is about squatting. Like one of the things that I noticed so much everywhere in Asia is like everyone squats. Everyone just squats when they're hanging out and wasting time and waiting for a bus, et cetera, et cetera. And like chairs and the way that we are ergonomically has completely fucked up our bodies <laughs> in modernity. And it's like, oh, well, there, you know, there certainly there are cultural reasons and architectural reasons for not having bulky furniture in places and financial reasons, but also just physically, naturally, you know, I imagine a lot fewer people who live in Mongolia have really chronic lower back pain than Americans do. And so it's really, it's just, I, it really sparked something for me when you said that because of how many times in the 10 years intervening, I've stopped to be like, I don't need to buy a specific tool for this. I don't need to come up with a different solution for this. There is a simple way that works. But we're so like not socialized to that, I think, many of us in terms of how we grow up in America. So I don't know. That was kind of just a tangent, but you just really made me think and I wanted to say that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right on about the squatting, which is sort of the, the way people rest. And, and you know, and as you said, instead of standing all the time, they'll squat part of the time. And that is it's like it's almost like a yoga position. It's, right. it's stretching, but it's comfortable. And the really great squatters can actually squat as a tripod. If you're, if you're flexible enough, they can actually sit for hours like a tripod meaning they're on their butt and then there's the two feet with their knees bent and they are they're 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 solid on the yeah. ground they're, they're centered they're stable they're grounded <laughs> <laughs> so what i'm what i'm wondering having followed your work for a long time you have been writing and chronicling and challenging for decades why has it taken this long to, to bring Vanishing Asia to life? It's a good question. So so I would say, first of all, this is sort of almost closer to an art project, mm. which, I, which I define as kind of cool, but not necessarily <laughs> that useful. It, it's, it's an art project in the sense that there was no one on Twittering saying, we need more pictures of old Asia. It's, it's a compulsion. It, it's a, it was, for me, it was a compulsion to do. I just... I just needed to do it. I didn't know that I needed to do it. Go back to your earlier question of how this began. 
I, I was not intending to do this. I left and went to Asia instead of going to college in 1972. And it was an alternative for me to, to a university. And, it, and I joked that, you know, after my first decade there, I awarded myself an honorary PhD in Asian studies. So that's how it kind of began. Although I was photographing from the very beginning, I did want to be a National Geographic photographer, but I didn't want to be on assignment. So I decided to give myself the assignment. And I always had in mind, not always, but you know, somewhere in the, I don't know, a couple of years in, I, I kind of imagined a book. I did do one book that was published by Tashin very early on, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't complete enough. And I changed what I was photographing a little bit. So books are not at the center of culture anymore. I, I think this may be my last big paper, paper first book. There's not going to be a digital version of this. It doesn't work in digital. I've tried it. There, you need a really big screen People don't have them. If you can try to read this on a screen or iPad, it just doesn't work in a digital mm -hmm. format. So there's not going to be a digital version of it. It it, it is a native book, and and books, for all the many many virtues they have, and I am speaking right now, surrounded in a two story high library of my books that I love and need, but they're no longer really at the center of the culture. And and the moving screen is this. You know, we've moved from being people of the book to becoming people of the screen, and it's the moving image on the screen, and what's beyond the screen, or the kind of the falling into the screen with AR and VR, all that kind of stuff. That is where the center of the culture is moving to. So, so there's. I'm just saying, there's not like there was. This is not sort of a fashionable thing to do. I'm not. <laughs> I'm. Not, it's not a nifty. I'm not riding the trend here. It's, it was coming more out of a compulsion to do this and to complete this work, which was still photography on a page. It was something I kind of grew up thinking about. It's kind of, I grew up as a photographer thinking in terms of books. You know, I'm, I'm a magazine junkie. I started a magazine on paper, several magazines on paper, including Wired. And so that's home for me. And that's, Here's here's the honest answer. There's an audience of one for this book. It's, <laughs> it's me. I made this book for me. In fact, I can say honestly that if we only print one copy of it, I'm happy. That 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 would have been enough. But since I'm printing one, I want to print more and share it. And that's the whole idea of making this cheap enough to to have other people buy it. Because I'm going to make one. And then you know it's like, well, <laughs> why not make a I'll few make more? a bunch? Yes, please. That's really what it comes down to. I'll dedicate a room in my house to this book, Kevin. <laughs> so one thing I really wanted to ask you about, and we can, you know, maybe as we get into discussion of cultural changes, one thing that occurred to me as I was reading a bit was how different was being a photographer of rural places 50 years ago to now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it was it's immense. I, I don't even know where to begin. But here's 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 one thing I would say. I would say that probably everybody listening to this podcast right now has probably taken at least two photos in the in the last 
12 hours, 10 to 4 hours. When I left, my family had a brownie, Kodak brownie camera with with uh, 24 exposure roll in it, which they did once a year. Mm. Wow. Okay, so they would take 24 pictures in a year. That would include, you know, Christmas, our birthdays, sure. whatever it was. I built, when I was like 10 or 12, a nature museum in our basement complete with exhibits and everything. And there's not a single photograph that exists of that. So Didn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah, They're right. like, oh, sorry. We're, sorry, we, that's one. We've got that bar mitzvah coming up. So. Right, right. Have, yeah. We've got 23 exposures <laughs> this year. I don't, so, and it was very expensive. So even when I left, each time I clicked a shutter, it was five equivalent to $5. Wow. So photography was not a thing if to do photography back then you when i first started in high school in the 50s, uh, 60s it was you had to be chemist you had you, you you had to do all the the chemical processing and printing yourself so it was there was no way no other way to make prints and so unless you hired you had a lot of money you hired somebody but but photography was in a very different arena where now everybody is a photographer everybody knows kind of the basic language of of lenses and you know telescopic lens or exposures. This is like this is like common knowledge. Back when I started in photography, nobody knew it. Therefore, when I was traveling in Asia, I often had the ca- uh, first camera that anybody had ever seen. Wow! Right? Yeah. Okay. They kind of knew what it was about, but they never seen a camera. They 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 never even had a picture taken in many cases. So the role of photography was in a very very different position it was sort of exotic it wasn't people weren't vamping for it because they didn't know what it was they did they, they i mean they didn't that that wasn't what the the response <laughs> for it. the response at the very very beginning was often what's the word confusion mm-hmm. it was like why would you want to take a picture of me it's very expensive you, you they knew that that of course they couldn't see it and that was the other thing that f- photography meant was I, I imagine if you're taking pictures with the camera but there was no screen on your phone sure you couldn't see what you had taken you couldn't see it until a year later <laughs> uh, and that's what was happening i was photographing slides and i didn't i would mail them back to my mom who put them in the freezer and then i would co back home and I would work for a while to earn enough money to process them because I had no money. And so it would be years later before I would see actually what I was photographing. That's a very, that's a terrible way to learn how to get better because (laughs) that feedback loop. So the the point is, is that it was a very different uh, photography had, has a very different role. Now it is ubiquitous. We, we, we think in terms of this, but that was not present at the time, which was maybe an advantage to mm. me getting it, but it it was a much more difficult process to, to to get those images because of the expense, because of I couldn't see what I was doing, and all these other reasons. So 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 it it played a different role in in the culture at large. So I want to shift gears now a little bit. We've talked a bit about Kevin and a bit about Asia. I actually want to zoom in on the vanishing part. And I'm just curious, given that that is your assessment of what's going on, do you feel like there's a point of no return for a culture or a system where it can't hold on or it can't recover and it kind of just has to give way to modernity or give way to the new and how have you seen that dynamic being held by the people involved? I just want to hear kind of your, your sure. overall reflection on the vanishing yeah, force. Yeah. yeah, it's very 
important. It's very large scale trend. And and so in some respects, this book is sort of like a lie in the sense that this does not represent what Asia looks like. Mm. This is this is this is the one percent. This is the one percent that's left. That's that's there. So most of Asia is it's modern. It's concrete. It's electrical wires everywhere. You know, it's um, those images are very prevalent as well. And what, what's vanishing? There's often a reason why they're vanishing because um, many of these old things that have this incredible beauty are impractical mm-hmm. to anybody who has any ambitions to do things. And and so the the reason why a young person will leave the organic food of their home and this beautiful village with handcrafted materials and an incredible family support system and knowing who they are and they'll go into they'll buy one way tickets into the city where it's can be grimy and mm-hmm. dirty and uncertain and they don't know who they are they, they do that because they're moving to increased possibilities and choices they don't want to be what their father was, which was a farmer. They don't want to be what their mom was, which was a housewife with who had very little rights. And so they're migrating to increase possibilities and choices, the possibility of being a ballerina or a mathematician or a web designer, whatever that is. And they want to live in, you know, in waterproof box that has air conditioning and Wi-Fi. And I would too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why not? Sure. We do. Yeah. Right, and so so we understand. I understand why these things are vanishing, and the question is, what's replacing them? And my observation about the the, the cultures of Asia is that these are not your. This is not your father's or grandfather's Asia. It's not their father's Asia. Let's take one example: China, where I spent a lot of time recently. The the, the young people are inventing a brand new immigrant culture mm. america was the, the energy that america had in the last century was due to the fact that we had this we had an immigrant culture we had this melting pot we had this incredible hybrid vigor that came from people arriving from all different countries coming together meeting rubbing shoulders having to work with each other coming with different assumptions and backgrounds and using that as an energy to you know, innovate and make new things and head into the frontier. And that's happening in China. But the immigration is all internal. They're coming from Yunnan, and they're coming from Inner Mongolia, and they're coming from Guizhou. And they speak completely unintelligible languages at home. They learn Mandarin in school. Which is the you know the lingua franca? It's like the English, and they come into the cities, and these cities are brand new, and they're all filled with immigrants. So Shenzhen, the great manufacturing hub, which is next to Hong Kong, has twelve million people. Not a single one of them was born in Shenzhen because mm. it was a fishing village just twenty five years ago. And there was nobody there, so all those twelve million people are. Immigrants who have migrated in there from different parts, very different backgrounds. The difference between Inner Mongolia and you know Xinjiang and and Guiyang are huge, and they're rubbing shoulders together and they're inventing a new culture. And they find some of the things that their parents did to be as alien as you know the '60s generation might have thought about their parents. And so they're making a brand. New, 
modified culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 it's exciting right now. They don't know what they're making. They don't know where they're going. Everybody in Asia is driving a thousand miles an hour and they have <laughs> no idea where they're going, but they want to go faster. So it could, it could, there could be some disasters coming, but it's thrilling right now just to see the speed at which they're kind of reinventing themselves. That, that feels like a good segue to something I wanted to ask you about, which is when you think about traditional ways that you have observed and experienced, and I know there's a lot of variety because you went to a lot of places a lot of times, but when you think about what is at the root of sort of the OS of an older way of being, of the Asia that is vanishing, and you contrast that with the OS of, you know, modern American extractive capitalism. What are some of the what are like what are some of the principles that you see in each and what can we be learning or applying or be thoughtful about? And conversely, what can vanishing Asia be thoughtful about so they don't end up in some of the same masses that we have? Yeah, yeah. No, it's that's I think it's one of the central questions right now. As it's no no news to anybody that there is a an emerging I wouldn't call it battle, but there's an emerging there's an emerging game between China and the US and and the general approaches and it's not clear where each is going and and what will happen. I would say, you know, it's, it's like a, in the scenario business we call this as a wild card. Mm. This is like we have really it could go and Five different directions, and they could all be very, very different from each other. And it's really hard to to even predict where where we're even leaning right now. So I, I would say yes. I would say there are some, you know, the general kind of uh, broad generalization filled with all kind of caveats about Asian culture is that they 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 do tend to stress the value of the group and societies mm. less than the individualistic honoring that we do in America. Mm-hmm. We almost fetishize this idea of the self-reliant individual and the and the rights of the individual. And the kind of stereotypical counterpoint to that is the Asian society valuing the group and kind of like the almost extreme version of some of the Japanese practices where mm-hmm. the group is paramount and the needs of the group, the consensus of the group, etc., and so and so, I think, I think we're headed. Well, I, I think globalization is unstoppable. No matter wh- mm-hmm. what happens between the U.S. and China, globalization will continue. And part of that is, I think, we are manufacturing or we are devising a convergent global culture. In my observation of traveling around the world is that most you know that the your people or kids are listening to the same music, watching the same movies, and more importantly, they study the same things in school. If you mm-hmm. take the curriculum, it's exactly the same. Mm. The one difference is that every every country might have their own history, kind of history they're teaching the content, but they're learning science, they're learning mathematics. It's the same math, it's the same science, it's the same English, and 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 that idea of kind of a of a universal curriculum that's the first time. And that's producing, and, and, and as well as this kind of global, the common culture globally is producing, I think, a convergent culture along certain axes. And, and the way I would say it is, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, that at the bottom rungs of that, the shelter and clothing, we are converging. Mm. 
mm. as a as a planet on those things. This, mm-hmm. you, know, you take That's a picture so in a, in a, in, a, in a urban area, you remove the language, you can't tell where that was taken. Yeah. And I think that even as we converge on these lower levels of the uh, hierarchy, which Aslan never really made, but we've interpreted it as that, I think that we will have a chance to diverge at the upper levels in terms of what it means to us, in terms mm-hmm. of the, how we see what we do, the name of our of our vocation that will kind of continue to to have diversity at the higher levels of what it means to us, even as we converge completely at the lower ones. And so mm. that's where I see the kind of cultures between West and East going that that we, we, the West, will learn to, and I think we're in this process right now, we'll learn to value the, the societal needs, the societal infrastructure, the 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 power of groups small and large how to collaborate at scale in real time mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the new tools are going to be invented and the east is asia is going to absorb some of the values that we have of the power of the reckless challenging rebellious individual who questions authority that's the you know that's mm. at the core of all innovation is questioning authority well questioning authority is one of the things you don't do in asia generally and so they're kind of learning how to do more of that well and that brings up another question that we had which is the western view of of asia is that it is simultaneously very ancient and very modern very bureaucratic and top-down and yet innovative and kind of in a wild west wild east mode the wild east i love that that's a that's a great (laughs) title of a book the wild east but but go on you know is that is it accurate to view it as a polarity is it accurate to view it that binary or is there something more complex going on there's always it's always more complex than you think that's (laughs) that's the beauty of journalism is that once you get into the details it's a lot more complicated always but you know to first approximation we're going to to see that asia is far more innovative than Westerners assumed, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think we're going to. I think the, the there's going to be a kind of the shift in the cultural gravity away from the West and into Asia. The Asia you know, we're heading into the Asian century, and I think there's going to be movies, books, music coming out of Asia that will be not just K-pop level, but will be the main event. And I would say within ten years we'll see a, a product come out of Asia that was Asian designed and Asian made that will be the the gold standard, that will be the thing that everybody in the world wants and desires, including everybody in the West and the US. Maybe it's an electric car, or maybe it's some smart glasses. I don't know what it will be, but it'll come and this will be a huge kind of a, a, a requiring a reset and a recalculation in people's mind that, oh no, they're just copying stuff. Well, that hasn't been true for at least five years, mm-hmm. and I we haven't yet had the moment of reckoning. But what's happening? This is this kind of cultural change. What's happening is that you have all these kind of, you know, gurus, innovation gurus going over to China and saying, 
in, in other parts of Asia, saying, here's what you need. You need to have science fairs. You need to have, you know, the scenarios. You, you go through this whole whole list of things that, to bring innovation, and they're going right down the list, and they're doing all of them, and they're working. It's kind of like what happened in right. Japan, where the efficiency experts went over and said, here's what you need to do, and the Japanese did them, and it worked. Mm-hmm. And so we're teaching them how to be innovative, and it works. And so, so, so that's that's part of this change in the culture where I think they are going to bring innovation in and, and, you know, have some of that questioning authority and just, just questions as, as more than they have and make some new kind of way of doing it. And that's a huge benefit that we have alternative ways of doing things. And I think it'll, I think it'll sneak up on us sort of like the levy breaking in a way, because while there may be a grand delay before they unlock some of that stuff, when they do unlock it, they often do it at a scale that really dwarfs what we're used to because of the size of the culture and the willingness to go big. And I'm thinking right now of, you know, one of the strongest examples and largest examples in our space of innovation around organization design is Hire, which is the Chinese appliance manufacturer. And the scale at which they're experimenting with structure and authority, it kind of dwarfs even the most radical American counterparts. And even though it's the first of its kind, so to speak, in that in that market, it does feel like a watershed moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree. That is, there is an arithmetic at work here, which is if you just take China and India alone, that's three billion people versus the three hundred fifty million in in America. We're one tenth the size of of India and China, and increasingly, what they do matters more to the world just because of their size, mm-hmm. just because of the scale of things that they're attempting. And yeah, Hire is a remarkable company, and they they do take you know innovation and making new things very very seriously, and they're willing to they're willing to to try things at a scale that many other places don't have the opportunity to. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask about, which is is related to organizational culture stuff, while we're sort of on the topic, so when we look at orgs and we're in them and we're trying to help them adopt new and better ways. One of the things that we are considering is what is actually organizational debt and what might they try instead, et cetera. And also at the same time, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is the role of tradition. Because mm-hmm. when we go into orgs, it's like certainly this year, you know, in in our house, we could not put up a Christmas tree because it's not strictly necessary and it takes a day and it there's a lot of needles to clean up afterward. And that tradition like gives us something. So we shouldn't just like throw the baby out with the bathwater. So how do we think about advancing culture and, you know, looking at tradition with like a somewhat critical eye around its utility rather than just being like, this is old or this is inefficient or this is unnecessary. We don't need it. No, I I think you're absolutely right on that. We, in in a way that we probably didn't appreciate until we started to remove some of these traditions is that we crave them and really want them. I don't have very many regrets with our growing up with our family, but one of the regrets I do have is I wish we had, invented more family traditions mm. because the kids just the older they got the more they kind of 
crave them, more they, they, they depended on them, more they returned to them, even though they were silly things like, you know, pancakes every Sunday morning, no matter what, that was just like, it's, it's, it's a sort of a meaningless thing, but it becomes hugely meaningful just by the repetition, by the fact it becomes a family tradition and all kinds of other things yeah. come around it. So I've noticed that, you know, it's like, okay, uh, the thing about traditions is they don't actually have to be like ancient. That was the genius of Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> Burning Man just blatantly, nakedly said, this is a made up tradition and we're going to burn the man every year so that we can burn it next year. And mm-hmm. they, and so it was like, okay, they made this invented mythology that seemed to work in some ways almost as good as one that was, you know, a thousand years old for, for many people. And I'm thinking of like, you know, Singles Day in China. Mm-hmm which is this thing, you know, it's a kind of a big buying day, but it's, it's, it's acquiring all kinds of other things around it. And, and it's in a made up invented manufactured tradition that will probably be, you know, a thousand years from now, they'll, they'll have a whole mythology about it and where it began <laughs> lost in the mist of time singles day. So, so I, th- I think, I, I think the kind of, I don't know, takeaway is that I think companies, families, institutions, organizations should feel permitted or encouraged to make traditions because they work to mark the passages, to have a company culture, to do things because you've always done them that way. And and that seems to be enough that you need to have a tradition is simply we're just going to do this all the time, every time. And that gives a, I don't know, a framework a skeleton, a, a place to hang all the other good stuff about a tradition. Nice. So I think where I go to from there, from traditions, which are almost about locking in a way of thinking, I am interested having spent so much time putting together the book and reflecting on the, the challenge of some of these older ideas and, and, and wisdom. How has putting together the book challenged your own thinking? How have these trips and these visits mm. and these tours challenged your thinking, your identity, the way you sort of see the world? That's a good question. The thing about, yeah, I, I think the question that it provoked to me was, you know, it, the vanishing part of Asia throughout Asia. And again, I define Asia broadly from Turkey to Japan and down to from Siberia down to Indonesia and that's huge. And there's more diversity, you know, almost between Korea and Oman than there is between Korea and the U.S. And so it, 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 it's a big territory. But, but, but you know, I, I saw all this stuff disappear from this very large territory from, you know, Turkey to Japan. I was concerned or I was worried or I always was trying to figure out, does this mean that we're becoming homogenous okay. is, you know, all the cities are, they do tend to look the same. Is this really the best thing that could happen to us? And, and so that's that, 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 that worry and that concern really was something that shifted my attention from just trying to catalog the stuff that was vanishing to try and look to where the new things were happening and to see whether there was this div- increase in diversity in, in the cities. And so this is the same moment, of course, as you know, many of the Asian cities started to 
gallop ahead of cities in the Western Europe in terms of being futuristic and having things like, you know, cashless societies and in many ways kind of inhabiting the future even before we would see it in the West. And so so I, I it changed me in terms of while I went to, to Asia to record what was vanishing, I was being schooled in what was the future, what was what was arriving from the future. And I haven't done that systematically as systematically as I have been cataloging, but I think what I've changed my mind about is I'm really convinced that the future is going to arrive in Asia in the in, first in this next century. And I th- I am telling myself and I am educating myself and I'm convincing myself through these travels and changing my mind that that, that really, if I was to like run a new Wired magazine, I would almost entirely devote it to what's happening in that continent mm. because I feel that that's going to be far more important in the long term than the politics of the U.S. or whatever. So, so that's maybe where it changed my mind. Well, anything that gets my mind off of the politics of the U.S. <laughs> yeah. sounds like we'll a good it. idea. I'll take it. Give me two copies. Um, that actually seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close. So, Kevin, where can our listeners find out more about Vanishing Asia and maybe even uh, get a copy for themselves? Yeah. Um, my home site is my initials, uh, kk.org, kk.org. There's a, that's my major website where everything kind of links out from. But if you Google Kickstarter and Vanishing Asia, you should arrive at the campaign that's going on right now. I am trying to uh, have a Kickstarter exclusive price that <laughs> anybody who buys or orders one, whatever they call it, you get a reward, which is a discount from the eventual retail price because it will be available on Amazon eventually probably at $300 for the three volumes um, sold together which weighs by the way 27 pounds so there's oh just the, goodness just the paper just the alone. shipping just the shipping yeah Amazon yeah so it is it is a commitment in that sense and yeah head over there if you want I have a, an Instagram account where I've been posting for the past year images from nice. it if you really don't want the paper version there's there's a lot of images to enjoy there i i will continue to post um images from the book of which there's nine thousand, so we're not going to run out and when i write things on the kk.org there's a little blog called the technium where i occasionally do post my more technologically oriented stuff so we can you can find me there nice we will put links to all that in the show notes I would add one little last promotion thing that I run a weekly newsletter called Recommendo, which has six recommendations that Mark, Claudia, and I do every week. There's this one page and it's free. We've been doing it for four years now. It's it's the thing that people enjoy the most that I do, <laughs> even though it's just kind of a side thing. So uh, you can see back issues at recommendo.com. Nice. Amazing. Kevin, thank you so much for coming back and being uh, a guest on our show again. 
Well, we, we could have talked for hours. I wanted to hear more about what you guys are working on, but I know you have a whole podcast series. So thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, a review would mean so much to us or follow us or forward the show to someone who needs it. And please, please, please give to this Kickstarter because I want this room of Kevin's books <laughs> in my house. I'll, I'll host something with a tour if you all give. All right. Nice. Thank you. Hey, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us all sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Or don't. 